Well, in 2016, Merriam-Webster added about 1,400 new words to their world-famous dictionary. Apparently, we've been coming out with a bevy of new phrases lately. Uh, some of those words were trivial slang. Others were, would, I, don't know, I should say, become words that would govern our lives. One of those words was the term FOMO. Now, if that phrase is new to you, it means the fear of missing out. In fact, if you browse through social media pages, you will often see that phrase accompanied by a hashtag, and it's a favorite of meme creators. In fact, here's just a few memes that have FOMO in them. Uh, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know that one does not simply overcome FOMO. Or, or Friday was D-Day, and so Franklin Delano Roosevelt will tell you the only thing to fear is missing out. And this morning, some of you may have experienced this. You had FOMO on your coffee. Right? Somebody still needs to wake up, maybe need some coffee. Whoever gets FOMO on their coffee, right? Now, what does FOMO really mean? Well, Time Magazine published an article on FOMO in June of 2016, and they defined FOMO this way. They said, FOMO is the uneasy and sometimes all-consuming feeling that you're missing out, that your peers are doing in the know about or in possession of more or something better than you. In fact, nearly three-quarters of young adults have said they have experienced FOMO in their life. Now, some of you are saying, well, this doesn't really apply to me. This doesn't look like me at all. This I, but I would say this idea of FOMO is something that marketing companies have been capitalizing on for years. In fact, there's actually a subdivision of marketing companies called neuromarketing. And what they do is they'll go in and they'll take brain scans of test subjects and uh, see how our brains respond to certain products. And so as a result, they can create strategies that, that make it better for us to feel like we're missing out. Now, why would companies do this? And I want to suggest to you this morning that advertisers know that FOMO plays on a really f a powerful emotion inside of us, and it's the emotion of jealousy. It's the emotion of jealousy, because I read a recent article, and it was entitled this. It said, Jealousy as a Trigger to Unique Product Preferences. And the author of that article suggests that companies employ this strategy. This is how they described it. You need to create a jealousy-inducing environment for your attention-grabbing products and promotion. In other words, if you want people to buy your products, you got to make them jealous. You got to make them jealous, right? Now, I think a lot of us know this truth implicitly. In fact, you may even be sitting here picturing a product that somebody has that you want right now. And we may laugh that off and say, oh, yes, haha, that is true, but it's not a big deal. I want to ask the question this morning, is it? Is it a big deal? Is jealousy a good thing? The truth is, jealousy can take us down a dangerous path. Shakespeare knew this well. He he, he showed us in his famous play, Othello, that jealousy is a theme in his main characters. What does the character of Iago say? Speaking to the noble Lord Cassius, he says this, Oh, beware, my Lord, of jealousy. It is a what? It is a green-eyed monster. It's a green-eyed monster. And if you're not careful, that green-eyed monster will consume you. Beware, O Christian, of the green-eyed monster. Beware. In fact, if you're not careful, you might become like Luke Skywalker facing the emperor because jealousy there, the fear of missing out, can easily turn into hatred. 
King Solomon knew this all too well. He writes this in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 34. He says this, For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. Have you ever been jealous? Has jealousy been a fixture in your family? Now, if the answer to those questions is yes, I suspect you know what it means to wrestle with the green-eyed monster. Author Paul Maxwell captures the wrestling match with jealousy profoundly in this statement. He writes this, jealousy is tyrannical. It's catastrophic. It's metaphysical. It feels controlling, and you cannot control, you cannot escape. It feels as if every particle of self-control you have in your entire being is vaporized in one fell emotional swoop. It brings people to the end of themselves in a millisecond, and they are no longer the same people. Have you ever experienced that? I suspect many have. And that's exactly what happens in our story today in Genesis 37. Now, we've come to a well-known section of Scripture. It's the story of Joseph. Joseph and his brothers don't get along. In fact, his brothers are jealous of him, and that jealousy eventually leads to the feeling of hatred. But as we'll see, everyone has a part to play in this problem. And we'll see that family relationships reveal really three truths about ourselves. First, we're going to see that they reveal the depth of depravity. Second, we're going to see that they reveal the deadliness of division. And then finally, we'll see the delight of deliverance. We'll see those things. If you want to face the green-eyed monster, you really got to look at all three of these. And so before we face them today, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for stories of deliverance, Lord. But we also know deliverance comes after we've confronted the sin in our lives, Lord. And so I pray this morning for for my heart, I pray for my friends that are here this morning, that we would see what you would want us to see this morning, and we would leave transformed for your glory. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're just joining us in our series, we've been kind of jogging through the book of Genesis. And Genesis really can be broken up into family cycles. And so uh, all these families are interconnected. Uh, The Joseph cycle is the last family cycle in the book, and it's really the longest. So Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham, and when we first meet him here in Genesis 37, he is a teenager. It says this in Genesis 37 too, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not Speak peacefully to him. Now, there's a lot in those few verses, so let's break it down. There's three main actors we're going to look at in Genesis 37, and all of them have a role to play in this unhealthy family system. And so as we go through the passage, what I'd like to invite you to ask yourself this morning is, in your own family system, what role do you play? Maybe you resonate with one of these three actors. So let's start with Jacob. 
So Jacob, you remember, we've met him in our last couple sermons. Uh, Jacob is the son who his father didn't love as much as his brother Esau. Jacob was loved by his mother, whom he conspired with to deceive his father and steal the blessing from his brother Esau. They did eventually make up, but it was a great cost. Now, Jacob suffered because of the sin of favoritism. We looked at that a few weeks ago. But as we see in these opening verses, Jacob really didn't learn from this experience. Instead, favoritism has bred more favoritism. And so in verse 3, we see that Israel, that is the other name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Does that sound familiar? Why does Jacob love Joseph more? Why, why, why does he do that? Well, in the sections we skipped over in Genesis in chapter 29 and 30, there's a lengthy narrative about how Jacob finds a wife. He was deceived by his swindling uncle Laban, who tricked him into marrying his eldest daughter, Leah. But Jacob, we learn, loved the younger daughter, Rachel. And so eventually he does take Rachel as his wife, a painful experience for Leah, I'm sure. Uh, Although Leah bears Jacob many sons, but Rachel could not have kids for many, many years until she had Joseph. And so he's the eldest son of Rachel, the woman he truly loved. And as you can see, Jacob favors Joseph, giving him this special coat, even though he's the 11th son in line. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that Jacob shows us the reality of generational sin. Generational sin, what's that? Well, generational sins can be defined as weaknesses or tendencies that have been handed down from generations to generations in families. In other words, they are sinful behavioral patterns that are prevalent in our families. So maybe your family is prone to a type of addiction. Uh, Maybe there's resentment or unforgiveness that abound in your family. Uh, Maybe it's lust or some specific idolatry. Those sins remain in your family until you break the cycle. And so here we see that the themes of Genesis 27 are repeated in the narrative about Joseph. In other words, Jacob repeats the sins of his father. But let's turn and look at Joseph here for a second. Because if you've read this story before, probably what you've heard is that Jacob was this innocent victim that was beaten up by his brothers. That's a common narrative when you read through the story. But I got to tell you, as I was studying it this week, commentators are really split about the role of Joseph. Right? Some people will say, yes, that Joseph's brothers were up to no good, and so Joseph goes and he, he tells on them, and he's, he's being obedient to his father. But other people will say that that phrase, specifically in verse 2, that he brought a bad report about his brothers, can be translated as a lie. That Joseph made up this story about his brothers, and he was doing it to incite them. Why would he do it? The question really in this passage about Joseph is this. Is Joseph a brat or is he a goody-goody tattletale? Now, if you look at it that way, either way, I can see why his brothers didn't look on him favorably. In fact, if you look down at verse 4, you're going to see that Joseph's brothers hated him and they couldn't speak peacefully to him. I can see why, right? Now, yes, Joseph had his father's approval, Joseph's father showed him incredible favoritism, but I don't think with his actions he helped this situation, right? In fact, Joseph probably knew that he was the favored child in the family, and he knew that he could get away with lying to his father. How many of you had somebody in your family who was the favorite kid, and they knew they could get away with whatever because their parents wouldn't believe they could do anything wrong, right? 
Now, also, we learn in the beginning here that Joseph is 17 years old. He's a mere teenager, which means he's probably immature. I mean, how many 17-year-olds do you know that are super mature? Now, if you're here this morning and you're a teenager, I'm not trying to be offensive. Um, Some of you probably are very mature for your age. However, um, you probably know some friends that are really immature, right? So what I'm simply saying is that youth lends itself towards immaturity. And more than that here, Jacob gave Joseph this coat. Let's talk about this this coat here for a second. The, The ESV says it was a robe of many colors. Now, those of you that are in here that are Broadway fans, all you can think about is that famous Technicolor dream coat from that that famous Broadway musical, right? It looks a bit like this. Don't start singing songs right now, but they're quite catchy. Now, the word here is really difficult to translate. Uh, A better translation of this phrase would actually be a richly ornamented robe. And it may have had a lot of colors. It may not have had a lot of colors. The key word in the translation is this. It was rich. It was rich. In other words, Jacob was lavishing wealth on Joseph in a way he was not with his other kids. I mean, just picture a Christmas gathering where your parents don't evenly distribute gifts. You know, you maybe get one gift, and your, your, your sibling gets 100 gifts. How would that make you feel? That's exactly what this coat represented to Joseph's brothers. In other words, uh, the robe for Joseph was like he was, he was the only one getting the trust fund. And so as a result, it's not far-fetched to assume that Joseph was this spoiled brat who was going around flaunting his favorite status before his brothers. In fact, Joseph may have been a narcissist, or he may have been suffering from a case of affluenza. How many of you know the name Ethan Crouch? Right? He was in the news a few years ago because in June 2013, when he was 16 years old, he stole beer from a store, he had a party at his parents' house, and then he took a drive. And he struck and killed four people in a town in Texas, and the people that were in his car were paralyzed with severe brain damage. Now, when he went to trial, you've probably heard of him because he became known as this affluenza teen. And the reason is that the psychologist who defended him coined this phrase and said that affluenza is growing means to grow up with money can cause psychological afflictions, leaving him too rich to tell between right and wrong. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not suggesting that or agreeing with the psychologist and saying that that wealth can negate culpability in a crime. But I think it is true that wealth sometimes can warp our view of responsibility. And parents with wealth can certainly teach their kids good morals, but in this story, that is not what Jacob is doing. And so as parents, we really need to take heed. Don't follow Jacob's example here. Don't do that. Jacob gave Joseph a lot of money, And it was, at the very least, warped his sense of self. He flaunted his favorite status, favorite status, before his brothers. And so, again, I want to suggest to you that Joseph, at this point in the story, the role he played was an example of immature pride. So Jacob was generational sin. Joseph is immature pride. And that caused a rift in the family. Now, we get another example of this because if you look at verses 4 to 9, we get these dreams, right? Have you read these dreams? Now, just put yourself in this situation. If your brother came up and started telling these dreams to you, uh, basically what happened was in the ancient Near East, uh, dreams were considered to be revelations from God. And so they, they carried a lot of weight. And in the first dream, Joseph comes up to his family and says, essentially, I saw all these sheaves of wheat, you know, out in the field, and all these other sheaves were bowing down to my sheaf, Right? 
And then his brothers were angry because he thought they were, he was saying that he was better than them. And then he tells a second dream, and it's this astrological dream where the sun and the moon and the stars, they're all coming and bowing before him. And at that point, his father said, enough is enough, Joseph. We cannot have this. This is what it says in the text. It says, but when he told, uh, uh, told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Now, again, it's, it's true here that the dreams are prophetic, as we'll see later in the story, uh, but it is likely also that Joseph was a bit too immature in telling them, perhaps he was even before his brothers taunting them with these dreams. In this dream, Joseph, or Jacob himself says, enough is enough. That word rebuked there is a very strong word. It means he, he sternly told him to stop, which would seem to indicate that Joseph was telling these dreams with a bit of hubris. Look at how great I am, guys. You're going to bow down to me. In fact, it may indicate that without intervention, Joseph was on his way to becoming a bad person. Even Joseph was depraved. And so finally, we come to his brothers, and we see their reaction in verse 11. It says this, and his brothers were jealous of him. Now, the word jealous here is very strong. In fact, in this context, it might even mean something deeper than hatred. And there's a number of times in this story where Joseph's brothers are said to hate him. In fact, commentator Gordon Wenham says that the phrase, his brothers were jealous, is ominous, suggesting that they may well seek revenge. And so we see here the third party. The brothers are an example of unbridled jealousy. Unbridled jealousy. And really the question is, why were they so jealous of Joseph? Yes, 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 he had his father's affection, clearly. But he also made up stories about them. He flaunted his gifts. He tells dreams that say he's going to rule over them. I mean, if your sibling was doing that to you, right, wouldn't you be jealous too? <laughs> what, what emotion would that evoke in your heart? That wouldn't just make me jealous. I think that would also make me angry. Maybe I can understand why they hated him. Do you see here how family relationships show us the depth of depravity? Three actors, Jacob, Joseph, the brothers. Jacob shows generational sin. Joseph shows us immature pride. The brothers show us unbridled jealousy. How could this go wrong? Family relationships reveal the depth of depravity. And friends, this can easily make its way into our families. And so I want to suggest to you two points of application before we move on. First, we really need to reflect on our own role in our family system. What role do you play? Because too often within our families, we like to point our finger at the other person, and what we don't realize is that there's three fingers pointing back at us, right? When we do that, we forget that we need to reflect and ask ourselves, maybe I'm part of the problem. If we don't look at ourselves and the role we play, we miss what's going on in the system. Now, I want you to think about it this way. I've used this illustration before in a different uh, sermon on dysfunctional families, but uh, think about a child's mobile. Like when my daughter was young, we had this type of thing over her bed. And in the mobile, it's interesting because every time one piece moves, you know that every other piece moves as well. In the, in the, it's, a, it's a system, right? 
The same thing is true with the family roles we play. When we act one way, our, our siblings and the other people in the system are going to act a different way in response to that. And so Jacob, Joseph, and the brothers are all playing a role. But if we don't discover the problem, we don't discover it unless we start to reflect on what's going on. And when we reflect, we do the second thing. We start to own our role in the system. I mean, just imagine if Jacob and Joseph had owned their role in the system and what was going on. Maybe the brothers would not have been so hard of heart. Even if you have a small role to play in the system, own it because it'll change everything. So family relationships reveal the depth of depravity. But secondly, secondly, when division takes hold, it can turn deadly. And that's where we turn next. We see the deadliness of division. Now, the next part of the story is pretty action-packed because basically what happens is Joseph's brothers go out to tend their field, their, uh, their shepherding, their flocks in a remote place called Dothan. And on his father's instruction, Joseph goes out to follow and meet his brothers in this town called Dothan, which is it's pretty much like you're going up in the middle of upstate New York where there's nobody around. There, if something happens, there's no witnesses in Dothan. And so as it happens, Jacob, uh, Joseph finally goes and finds his brothers, and we read this in, Je- in, Ch- in verse 18. It says this, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to what? To kill him. Now that, I think, is not the greeting you would like to get from your brothers, right? Here's what we need to see very quickly in this verse, and it's this, words matter. Words matter. Notice here that Joseph's brothers were talking about their hatred of him before they carry out anything physical. And that's really always how it starts, right? Have you ever, have you ever gossiped, discussed plans, or spoken unkind words about a family member behind their back? They continue, verse 19, it says, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Friends, words matter. Now that phrase, here comes the dreamer, is this mocking phrase. Uh, the word kill literally means let's murder him. And so this, we really see here this was a premeditated act by the same men who committed that atrocity at Shechem we learned about last week. And so I imagine his brothers are sitting here, they're laughing as they're plotting to carry out this evil deed against their brother. And so here we see where jealousy, dangerous jealousy, can take us to hatred and worse, physical violence. Now, in the New Testament, in the book of James, uh, he warns us about the power of the tongue, right? In James chapter 3, he tells us the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness, and it stains the whole body. And so the words of Joseph's brothers are staining their whole body as they speak. Have you ever used hateful words towards a family member? If you have, I would encourage you to acknowledge that and seek forgiveness. Because maybe you haven't physically killed somebody, but some of us have killed relationships with our words. Right? We have not physically touched somebody, but because of your words, it's been years since you've seen a family member. And so a second truth follows the first. The second truth is this. Actions follow words. 
Now, what is interesting about this scene is that Reuben, the eldest son of Leah and Jacob's, of the eldest son of Leah and Jacob's real firstborn son, is the one who talks the brothers out of killing Joseph. He really should have been the one who is the most offended, but he steps in for Joseph. And he says essentially this, don't kill him, let's throw him in a pit. And so we see here that Joseph arrives and actions follow words. Verse 23, it says, So then Joseph came to his brothers, and they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. Now, the words used here and in the following verses are violent. That that word stripped literally means to skin an animal. So so they rip his clothes off of him, and then they do this. They took him, and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. That phrase, they threw him into a pit, means literally to dump a dead body in a grave. So make no mistake, even though Reuben talked them out of killing him, his brothers wanted to murder Joseph because of their hatred. And so in these two verses, we see the depth of depravity and the deadliness of division on full display. And then look at what the brothers do. I find this really interesting. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. They beat their brother, they strip him of his clothes, they throw him in a pit, and then they go have some sandwiches or whatever it was they were eating at the time. I find it so interesting, but I think the phrase just shows how hard their hearts were. And even more than that, we don't learn this here in this verse, but if you look down in Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, when the brothers meet Joseph in Egypt later on in the story, they recount what happened on this day, and they say that in this moment, this is what they say, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged for his life. And we did not listen. In other words, Joseph cried out for mercy here, and they ignored him. In this moment, he begged for his life, and his brothers sat there, and they ate. They ignored him. They mocked him. But let's turn back to Joseph here for a second, because I think there's something we can't miss about Joseph's role in this story. Do you remember that Joseph we met all the way back in Movement 1? What was he like? Right, he was arrogant. He was prideful. He flaunted his wealth and favored status before his brothers, inciting them to action. And so I want to suggest to you today that Joseph needed the pit, and I think so do we. We all need the pit. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Chuck DeGroat is a pastor and counselor, and he wrote an excellent book. I've recommended it up here before, and it's this. It's called The Toughest People to Love, How to Understand, Lead, and Love the Difficult People in Your Life, Including Yourself. And it's an excellent book I come back to time and time again. Uh, in the book, in a cha- he's got a chapter entitled Growing Through Pain, The Gift of the Dark. And in the chapter, he talks about something called the dark night of the soul, which he borrows from a medieval monk named St. John of the Cross. And what DeGroat argues in the chapter is this, without a dark night of the soul, without confronting, without experiencing, uh, and walking through pain, we won't experience real, true transformation. This is what he writes. He says this, St. John assumed that without darkness, you and I would be helplessly caught in illusory images of the good life. And he'd ask us this very hard question, are you offering the gospel or preaching an illusion? 
The dark night for St. John is the cure of our arrogance, our blindness, and our vacuum of empathy. What is he saying? He's saying we all need the pit. That Joseph was building his life on an illusion. Yes, he had the coat. Yes, he received the dreams. But without the pit, he would have turned into an arrogant narcissist. But let me add one caveat to that. Even though we go in the pit, we also need to make a choice to allow God to transform us. There's choice involved. And this is so important because, we'll get to this in a minute, it's so important because there was more riding on this transformation than we know. That God had a mission for Joseph, and if Joseph was not up to the task, it would have meant the end of the family. And more than that, it would have meant the end of God's promise of salvation. Joseph needed the pit to make him who he was to become. Now, I'd like to invite you to ask yourself, think about anyone in your life, anybody you know, or think about yourself, when did you truly experience transformation? When did you truly grow in your life? Because I think if you talk to anybody who grows, who truly grows, they will always, always, always tell you that it's when you walk through something difficult. Right, you're rejected by somebody. A dream doesn't come true. You lose somebody. You're diagnosed with an incurable disease. You walk with somebody through pain. Why do we grow during those seasons? Well, theologian A.W. Tozer famously said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Because in those most terrible moments, God may be working the most. Joseph needed a dark night of the soul, but more than that, this was really a dark night for the family. Because the rest of the chapter goes like this. Instead of killing him, Joseph's brothers make a profit by selling him to some traders who are on their way to Egypt. And so supposedly Joseph is going to become a slave. And then the brothers slaughter a goat. They, they take his robe of many colors and they dip it in the blood of that goat. And then they return to their father. Right? Jacob, the man who deceived his father, is now deceived by his kids. That generational sin passes on to them. And so Jacob asks where Joseph is. And the brothers simply hand him the robe. And this is what he says. He says, he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is no doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. See, in this last scene of the chapter, both Jacob and, his bro- and the brothers have their own dark night of the soul. Jacob has lost his favorite son, the eldest son of the woman he loved. And when the text says here that he mourned for many days, it literally could mean that he mourned for months. He was weeping and wailing for months on end. And in that morning, you see the brothers experience their own dark night. Because as he mourns, it's clear to them that he loved Joseph more than them. Within family relationships, we see the depth of depravity and the deadliness of division. Now, I'm concerned about the general tenor of division in our world. In fact, I think if we're honest, we'll realize that we're much more like jo- Joseph's brothers than we like to admit. And no doubt, social media and the internet has played a big part in this. 
Uh, we speak in ways now that dehumanize people, and that proves deadly for relationships, I think. And so two, point, two quick points of application before we move to the final point. First, I want to suggest that we really need to work on praying for one another. I had a friend who said this to me one time. He said, it's very hard to dehumanize people when you pray for them because prayer knits our hearts together. And so if you're experiencing deadliness of division in your family, at work, or with your friends, pray for them. I mean, really and truly get on your knees and cry out to God and pray for them. I imagine that would change the way you interact. And then secondly, listen to their stories. Because I don't think we listen anymore. We find people and stories that reinforce our worldview, and we aren't willing to hear a different view of the world. And that's contributing to the deadliness of division in our homes and our world. So imagine if Joseph and his brothers had prayed for each other, if they had listened to each other. Now, despite all that happened, God is still at work. And so while family can be a tough place, we can also experience our final point. We can experience the delight of deliverance. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, commentators have noted that God is never mentioned in Genesis 37. Nobody prays to him. Nobody acknowledges him, even with the dreams. It just says that Joseph had a dream. God isn't mentioned, but he is most definitely at work. And we catch a glimpse of this in Genesis 37, 36, where it says this. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So these Midianite traders who picked up Joseph uh, drop him off in Egypt with this man named Potiphar. And that's significant because look at Potiphar's position, right? He is the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Why? Why is that significant? Well, what we can't know from Genesis chapter 37 alone is what God has planned for Joseph. Remember that same Joseph that went into the pit is not the same Joseph that came out of the pit. And so the rest of the story goes like this. Joseph becomes a servant in Potiphar's house. And in fact, in Genesis 39, we learn for the first time, for the first time that Yahweh God is with Joseph, that he found favor with God, and, and God caused all he did to succeed. And so Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph, but Joseph refuses, and then she complains, and she gets him thrown in jail. And so Joseph is in another dark pit again, but that's exactly where God wants him to be, because there he meets uh, Pharaoh's chief baker and chief cupbearer. And he interprets their dreams. And that word reaches Pharaoh because Pharaoh's been having some dreams, right? And so he calls on Joseph, and Joseph interprets those dreams, and we learn that there's going to be a famine. And so Joseph finds favor with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gives him responsibility over a lot of the land. And if you look, meanwhile, back in Canaan, Jacob and his family are experiencing the famine. And so Jacob says to his sons, you need to go. And, and go to Egypt and get some food. And when they get to Egypt, they meet, guess who? They meet Joseph. And they haven't seen him for 20 years, so they don't, they don't even recognize him, but he sees them and he knows them. And he convinces them to go back home uh, and find his brother Benjamin and bring him back. In fact, in chapter 44, Joseph just tests his brothers over and over again. Now, this is such an interesting part of the story because can you imagine what it's like to be in Joseph's shoes? 
I mean, for three chapters, he's just sitting there face to face with his brothers who sought to murder him, who sold him into slavery, who ignored him when he was crying for mercy, sitting face to face with them. And then in chapter 45, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. It says this, then Joseph could not control himself before all who stood before him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him, and Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and what? And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Now, just put yourself in this scene. So like, imagine you're Joseph's brothers here, and this guy who you don't recognize is sitting there, and he's wailing, and he's sending people out, and he's weeping, and, and you're saying, what in the world is going on? What is wrong with this guy? They got to be so confused. And then, and then Joseph whirls around and says this, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I'll bet they were dismayed. Brothers couldn't answer him. It was it's like a punch to the gut. What must be going through their minds? I mean, they, they tried to kill this guy, and now he's this powerful leader in Egypt. What would you be thinking if you were there? And again, what must Joseph be thinking? Because, listen, here's the thing I was thinking about all week. I'm reading this. I'm coming to the end here, and... I'm asking, why, why doesn't Joseph kill his brothers? I mean, even in this moment, he could. He could have had the guards come back in. He could have said, let's, let's slaughter them. Let me take revenge on them for all they did to me. Why doesn't he kill his brothers? And it's here that we see the delight of deliverance as God had planned. Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into, into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me here before you to preserve life. Is that the same Joseph that we knew? No, it isn't. God has done a work in Joseph's heart. See, Joseph recognizes that God has a plan. Joseph experienced the delight of God's deliverance multiple times at this point, and his heart is soft, even to his enemies. And so he continues in verse 7. And God set me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Can you imagine what it took for Joseph to say that to his brothers? I mean, this is the voice of a man who has faced the dark night of the soul, and it's a lesson for us that to experience true, real transformation, you have to walk through the wilderness. You have to sit in the pit. And what does it do to the family? So at the end of the chapter, they're all sitting there, they're weeping, they're hugging each other, and in verse 15 of chapter 45, it says, after that, after all this weeping and crying and hugging, his brothers talked to him. Now that blows me away, because maybe you're sitting here this morning, maybe you're watching at home, and, and, and 
you hated, you hated your siblings when you were kids. Maybe you haven't spoken to your brother or your sister, or maybe it's a friend or another family member. You haven't spoken to them in 20 years. Do you remember all the way back in Genesis 37, 4, it said that Joseph and his brothers, they, they couldn't speak peacefully to one another. And for the first time here, Genesis 45, 15, they do. It's the first time they ever were in real relationship. Wow. Do you believe that that can happen in your family? It only happens when people experience the delight of deliverance. And so after this, Joseph brings the whole family to live with him in Egypt, and we see evidence of this deliverance. Because Joseph's family walked through a dark night of the soul, and healing happened. Has your family ever walked through a dark night of the soul? In fact, perhaps it feels like right now you're sitting here and you're in a pit and God isn't present. And I got to tell you today that even in the midst of the pit, even in the midst of the darkness, hear this, God is present in the darkness. And he wants you to experience the delight of deliverance. Because Joseph's brothers were his enemies, but God calls us to love our enemies. Do you have an enemy in your family? Through the delight of deliverance, he softened all their hearts. And so I want to challenge you today, as we wrap up here, to identify a strained relationship. Someone you think is an enemy, and do three things. First, ask. Ask, what's my role? How do I contribute to this problem in our relationship? And take ownership of it. And then secondly, I want you to picture. Picture what's their life like. Because if we stop and ask this question, it would give us, I think, greater empathy for the person that we hate. And finally, I want you to act. Step out in faith. In fact, I, I put a place in the outline for you to write down the name of that person. Write down their name. Believe that God can heal that relationship. Make steps to restore it. Because God did this for Joseph, and he can do it again. Because through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the empowering presence of the Spirit, anything is possible, friends. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up on the stage. They have one final song for us. And as they come, I wonder if maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, Pastor Bob, in my family, I have seen the depth of depravity. I've witnessed firsthand the deadliness of division, but I don't think I'll ever taste the delight of deliverance. But Joseph's story showed us that it happened once, and he can do it again, friends. And so Joseph's story, I want to tell you, is, it points us to a story of deliverance. It points us to our own story of deliverance. Because don't you see that transformation can happen in your family? It can happen in your family because there was someone who faced the dark night for you. That hundreds of years later, God himself would come to earth. And just like Joseph, Jesus Christ was stripped of his garments by his own people. He was spit on and he was mocked. But they didn't show him mercy, friends. They killed him. The father turned his face from him and darkness covered the earth. And he was thrown into the deepest, darkest pit there ever was. Why did he do this? He did it so you and I could experience the delight of deliverance. 
He faced the darkness, but he did not stay there. And now you and I can experience resurrection that we sang about at the beginning. And not just resurrection of our bodies, but resurrection of our relationships. Because there is a helper he has left. The promised Holy Spirit who works in hearts and minds. For some of us, it's hard to believe that he's working in our family situations, but he is. And he did it for Joseph, and he can do it again. Do you believe that today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we recognize that relationships are hard, that families are hard at times, even if it's just a small piece of time, Lord. But we look at a story like Joseph and we recognize, man, that is amazing that you are the God who comes and intervenes, that you change hearts and minds, that you did it once and you could do it again, Lord. And I pray this morning for my friends who are walking through a tough time, who are sitting in the pit right now, Lord, that you would show up, that you would make yourself evident, and that people would look to you and trust you. Lord Jesus, you are our Savior, our Redeemer. You are sovereign over all things, and we put our lives in your hand. May you receive the glory for the delight of deliverance. In Jesus' name, amen. Walking a